0: Hello fellow music nerds. Welcome to season 2 of the Music Makers and Soul Shakers podcast. I am your host Steve Dawson coming to you from the Henhouse Studio here in Nashville, Tennessee. I'm a Canadian guitarist, songwriter, producer, and engineer, and I've been living and working here in Nashville for the last four years. A couple of years back, I decided to reach out to some of the amazing musicians, engineers, and producers I've met along the way to learn some of their more in-depth stories than what I'd been hearing elsewhere. So between March and August of this year, I'll be releasing a new conversation every Wednesday with someone who I feel has been involved with creating great recorded music. Feel free to reach out to me or leave comments at www.stevedawson.ca. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast for free on iTunes. Now, let's get down to another episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. Hello, friends, earthlings music nerds greetings to you all from the henhouse studio here in nashville one of the great contemporary songwriters joins me today ron sexsmith over the phone and we had a great conversation that swerved all across his lengthy career when i was touring across the country back in the 90s playing cd rock bars and listening to music in the van there was a couple albums that caught my ear and turned me into a lifelong fan of a couple of artists and these albums like really stuck out in the middle of whatever else we were all listening to. But I do remember a couple, of, a couple of records that were really huge for me. And one of them was the Bill Frizzell Farside album. And the other was the debut album by Ron Sexsmith. And Ron arrived on the music scene with a, a lot of fanfare over his debut album, and rightly so. It was full of amazing songs, unpredictable melodies, sonic experimentation, care of the producer Mitchell Froome, and Ron's delicate but confident voice that soared over all of it. Songs like Lebanon, Tennessee, Secret Heart, and There's a Rhythm opened my mind to a new kind of songwriting and production. I listened to that album endlessly and continued to follow Ron over the next bunch of albums that he made, and for whatever reason, some of which we got into in this conversation, major commercial success seemed to elude him, and he's certainly noticed that, and it does seem to be a bit of a thorn in his side in some of his interviews and stuff. But honestly, he's had so much amazing success as a writer and an artist, and uh, has had you know a really long career of making records. So to me, he seems wildly successful. Anyway, the list of artists that have um, covered his songs is equally as impressive. Um, Rod Stewart, Feist, Nick Lowe, Katie Lang, Emmylou Harris, Michael Buble, and lots more. Not too shabby. Anyway, it was great to talk to Ron about his early days struggling in Toronto, getting signed with a big deal to Interscope and all the hype that went along with that and then the ups and downs of a long career. We also talked about his process for writing and recording and it was really great to get into all this with him and learn some of the background on these albums that have become classics. Thanks to everybody for listening out there and tuning in. Please visit me at stevedawson.ca. You can um, hop over to the podcast page and listen to other episodes and leave comments. You can also make uh, donation and contributions there if you feel so inclined. That is how we keep this show going, and it would be greatly appreciated. Also, please head over to iTunes and subscribe to Music Makers and Soul Shakers there. It is free, and it helps us in the placement on iTunes and all that if we get more and more subscribers. So please do that. Spread the word if you can. All right, now I'd like to tell you about today's sponsor, Union Tube and Transistor from Vancouver, Canada. They're known for guitar pedals with a focus on quality and simplicity. They build durable, repairable products that are as at home in the studio as they are on stage. I got to say, I use these pedals all the time in the studio and live. I've got their Moore pedal and a Bender pedal, and they both get tons of mileage on sessions and gigs great tones, and the best fuzz effects going, too. Check them out at www.uniontone.com. And without any further delay, here is my conversation with Ron Sexsmith. You've you've had such a great career and history of making records. I thought you'd have some really cool insight into uh, the process. So that's what I wanted to talk to you about today.
1: Yeah, we're, we're actually just finishing up a record. Um, you know, we uh, we actually had it mastered and then we realized there was a few things we needed to fix. And and so now, uh, you know, they're they're just doing
0: these last minute little tweaks. And Uh
1: hopefully I'll have a finished record in a few days. You
0: know. Oh, fantastic. So can you tell me a bit about the new record?
1: Well, um, it's the first time I ever made a record with my own band, my my touring band. And it's actually the first album I've ever produced. I I produced it with... uh, Uh, My drummer, Don Kerr. Right. And um, we did it at the bathhouse, you know, the Tragically Hips
0: place. Yeah, that's uh, a a great place to work.
1: Yeah, you know, I wanted to find a place where we could go and eat and sleep there and record and kind of like, uh, uh, you know, our exile on Main Street or something, you know.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: We're in a big house recording. That's uh, that's
0: such a cool location too, because it's. I mean, it's not that far from Toronto. It's a few hours away, but uh, but it's far enough away and it's isolated enough where it just feels like a total um, yeah. summer camp or something.
1: It did, and we could really focus, you know, because we didn't we didn't really have anything else to do but record, you know. So and yeah. we had we had a lot of songs to to do in five days, right? Or,
0: okay, is that how long you took?
1: Well, it was actually six. The first six days, like the but the first day was mostly mostly set up, you know, but, yeah. um, but yeah, so we, we were trying to get like four to four, four a day, you know, bed tracks and, um, but we could do that, you know, cause we had, you know, I, I go in the studio, I mean, all my albums, I go in with complete songs, you know, so you can, uh-huh. you can work pretty quickly if you know, if you how it's supposed to go, you know, and, and yeah. we'd, we'd had a few rehearsals before as well. So, uh,
0: but yeah, so it, the band wasn't going in cold. The band knew the material sort of
1: yeah at different stages, because I'd sent them all my original you know acoustic demos, yeah they could sort of get familiar familiar with the changes and stuff and then, yeah, and then we had I think about two or three rehearsals at at Don Kerr studio in Toronto yeah um and actually that's where we finished off the album after we Don and I moved to his place, and you know we did a week of vocal you know harmonies and things and yeah and comping and um so it was actually done
0: pretty quickly and um did you just, did he mix it there with Don as well
1: no we uh, we we got Howie back to mix it, oh cool, he's doing a great job um, and yeah. Phil we're driving up the wall though because he'll do these great mixes, and then I'll just hear one little thing that bugs me, and I'm you know usually a vocal thing, and I'm seeing if there's any can you take this from another you know pass or something but yeah, um I've always been a very imperfect singer, and it drives me nuts because um I, you know, I think my phrasing has always been really good, but my pitch isn't always so great. So uh-huh. it's it's always hard to, you know, you get mostly a great take, and then there's one line that you know drives you nuts. So. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. And <laughs> and, and I, I know from from what you know from what I know about uh, records, and also from what you must have. Always liked as a songwriter, like those you know Dylan records and stuff from the from the seventies that you probably grew up with, and sixties and and mm. uh, you know those are uh, far from perfect records as well. And that must come into play for you as far as like towing the line between perfection mm. and and getting the getting the message across and getting the emotion that you want from the song, but still. But still, you know, without beating it to death, do you well, find? Well, yeah,
1: and, and the Kinks were very good at that. You know, yeah, I mean, yeah, their records never sounded as good as the Beatles' records. You know, but but totally. they had a a whole other vibe that I was really attracted to. And, and you know, the very first Dylan album I owned was "New Morning," uh huh, and that's my favorite one. And if you listen to it, it sounds like the band is just learning the songs. Barely that,
0: knows the songs, yeah. Yes, they're
1: they're recording them, you know.
0: I just got into that record again, and I've listened to it a ton of times over and over recently, and yeah. and it's amazing to me. Uh, the other one like that is Blood on the Tracks, where um, yeah, I I did a show in Vancouver with Barney Bentall, and we we read. We did that whole record from beginning to end, and you really, you really notice in in tearing the songs apart that you know the band really is hanging in by the skin of their teeth, and he just doesn't give a shit; he just goes for it. Yeah,
1: I've always admired that about him. Yeah, you know? and when I was first getting into him, it was interesting. You know, uh, it was it sort of gave it was it gave me the sort of a freedom. You know, like oh, uh-huh. you don't have to be, of uh, you know, I mean. There's people i mean obviously there's great records that are perfectly executed as well, you know yeah, yeah. Like the, the the beach boys, the harmonies on those albums and stuff and it's incredible, you know yeah but uh but yeah, you know I think that that was the thing about dylan and 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 some of the more sort of you know imperfect you know sounding artists that, that you know that that's where I think all the you know the the punk and all that sort of came from you know this uh, freedom to oh we don't have to be that great on our instruments we can just play because we have the spirit you know and, uh, yeah yeah um, you know and i i've always you know my favorite thing even before songwriting has always been singing you know and um and so it's it's always been a bit humbling to hear myself back through the speakers and you know in my head i'm singing like bill withers and then i hear it back it's like nope <laughs> 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 <You> know, <clears throat> but i i I always try to sing, you know, as good as possible and to, I want to, I don't want to make intentionally lo-fi records. You know, I've always, you know, I guess that was the thing with the Bob rock album I did is I just felt I needed to do
0: something where people would get me people uh-huh. who hadn't gotten me before, you know? So uh-huh. do you think that that was, that was accomplished with that record? Oh yeah, definitely. Cool.
1: I mean, um, that was my best selling album. And, um, especially in the U.K., you know, in Europe and that. And it uh-huh. did well in Canada. Um, yeah. I mean, America's hard. I, I've never really done well there. But um, but that album, I had two top ten singles in the U.K. I headlined Royal Albert Hall. A lot of really good things happened because of that record. Um, yeah, and, and, it, and, and at the same time, that's the album that I can't really listen to right now because of all the airbrushing and auto-tuning right. that, that happened. And that's, uh-huh. I mean, it, so... I wish maybe that could be, uh, I mean, in fact, we were going to work again on another record, but we sort of had
0: a bit of a a disagreement over that kind of stuff. But You and Bob Rock? Yeah, you know. um, Um, Was that unexpected, uh, with with working with him? I mean, that's sort of how he rolls, right? Oh, I knew, I knew, I mean, and the whole thing going into
1: that record, because I was pretty, I felt pretty low going into the record, just in terms of where my career was at, but I just told my manager, you know, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm going to work with Bob because I, I, you know, I'd met him at the Junos and I really liked him, uh-huh, right. and uh, I thought, but we got to do it Bob's way. We're going to work in, with his musicians. There's you know, no no point in working with Bob Rock if you don't make a Bob Rock album,
0: you know. Yeah, yeah. And, and
1: I felt the songs that I had were strong enough to withstand that kind of production, you know, uh-huh. and, and you know, because the next album, Forever Endeavor, you know, those songs. I don't think would have worked with Bob. And actually that was the initial, you know, we, I think he was upset that I went and did that one with Mitchell Froom. you know, uh-huh. and, uh, but I, I just didn't think, you know, it, that's, how, <clears throat> you know, his sound, the big drums and everything would have, would have been appropriate. But, but anyway, for that one album though, and I love the album, I love Long Player Le Bloomer, and I love what it did for my career at that time. But, but yeah, I just, uh, my ear goes to that auto auto-tune thing. Sure. Yeah. And, and uh a lot of people don't even notice it, which is fine, you know. But I I just have a hard time getting past it.
0: You mentioned Mitchell Froom. I was wondering if we could talk uh a, a bit about that. First of all, I'm interested in how it works for you revisiting your relationship with producers. You know, Mitchell Froom did your first well, not your first record, but like your first real yeah. release that people heard. Um, and then he did your second one as well, and then yeah,
1: my, my first three actually.
0: Oh, the first three. Okay. Yeah, and and then, and then he
1: did uh, two others later on. Right.
0: So, so how how has that process uh, developed over the years? Like obviously he must change, and you must change, and and how how has gone going back to him at various points in your life and your career been as a as a working relationship?
1: Um, well, he's you know he's probably my favorite producer and uh-huh. we have a we have a very good relationship i mean i haven't spoken with him in a while now but you know the biggest difference was the first three albums obviously there was a a more of a record industry you know yeah and the budgets were huge and it was the sort of tail end of the 90s with all the decadence you know throwing money around and yeah I'd be in New York for a month and fly me to LA to mix the thing for a month and put me in an apartment, you know. I was even in the phone book in LA during my first album because really? I was there so much, you know. Yeah. And um and also that was the the, the height of the Mitchell Froom the Froom and Blake. Yeah. Right, Because they were doing all these records, they were in, in high demand, yeah, and, I, and the fun thing was when I was in town and not recording, I would go by the studio and I'd got, got to see them working with Randy Newman and uh, you know Los Lobos, Cheryl Crow, people like that, so
0: so that was, was, exciting. was that so, was that around the Kiko time?: Yeah well Los it was Lobos? after Kiko it was, it was right it, after that, okay I
1: would already done Kiko when I worked with them, okay. And he'd done ninety, you know, the Susan Vega one ninety nine, yeah. whatever one point one or something. And um, but we, you know, I met Mitchell when I first got signed at Interscope. You know, they sent me on this uh, producer search where I went to New York f- for a few days, and I met a bunch of producers, and I went to L.A. and I think I must, I must have met about fifteen. Really. Producers. And some of the biggest producers at that time, you know.
0: Who else would you have met at that time?
1: Well, I met T-Bone Burnett and, uh-huh. uh, you know, I can't even remember their names now. Like Kurt Kirshenbaum, I think his name was. He did like the Tracy Chapman and stuff. Uh, oh,
0: okay. The
1: guy that did the Sheryl Crow album. Yeah. Um, you know.
0: Uh, was it John, John Le- Leventhal or something? I met like that? I met him. Yeah. He was
1: actually the first one I met. Okay. Um, but pretty much every producer, you know, Al
0: Al Albie Al- Galuten, I think his name was, or the label, I guess, was it Interscope at that time? Yeah. So they flew you all over the place to just hang out and just see they what happened.
1: around, it was like a job interview. I, they would fly me. I would sit in a hotel room, and, produce- <laughs> and be- for whatever reason, every producer at that time wanted to do my record, and like uh-huh. I, it was just this embarrassment of riches at this one particular time. You know, and so I would be in a hotel room, and they would just come in one after the other and tell me why they should do the record. It was really, I've never wanted to do it that way ever again, you know. You meet all these people and you're thinking, oh, yeah, they'd be good or they'd be good. I met Hugh Padgem was another guy who came in. And um, so then I went to LA. But but one of the first guys I met was Mitchell Froom, and he was working on a David Byrne album that actually never happened. Uh But I just really. The thing I liked about Mitchell right off the bat was he wasn't like desperate to do the record, you know. He was very much like you know, he had an, I, you know, you'd say I think you're very good at doing this, but you're not so good at doing that, you know, like uh-huh. cuz I didn't know. I wrote all kinds of songs. Like he didn't want, he had a sort of knee jerk reaction to things that he that were sort of in his mind sort of jive turkey, you know, <laughs> like a, Yeah yeah. Me, me, trying to sing something that was bluesy was just bad for right. him, you know. And he thought he saw me as almost a Karen Carpenter or something. He said, "You, you have, you know, this voice. It's got this, uh, you know, when you slow vibrato, and it's, it's kind of. He really liked that. And he thought uh, my back phrased a lot. Things are things that nobody ever said to me in my life, you know.
0: These were based off of demos
1: or your just, first, just off the demos. Okay, yeah. and. Um, so that was interesting, you know, this guy was, because I didn't know what kind of record to make, I, I was pretty scared, and actually when we, when I decided to go with Mitchell, uh-huh. um, you know, Interscope, immediately, uh, they they were worried, you know, because they saw me as like a Bruce Hornsby type guy, or, you know, uh, which...
0: Okay like sort of more of a straight up pop
1: or straight up or you know and Jimmy Iovine obviously had done all, some of the Tom Petty records so they saw me as like that type of guy you know mm-hmm. and 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 they never really cared about my influences you know I saw you know my the people I liked again you know were like like Nielsen and the Kings sure. and all that yeah in fact, one of the first things Mitchell asked me to do was to send him a tape of music that I liked, you know? Yeah. So I sent him, like, Charlie Rich and Tim Hardin and all these people. Uh-huh. And um, and it was helpful to him in terms of... Um, Understanding where you were coming from. Yeah, and how to how to approach my music, you know, because, you know, he would say sometimes, he goes, I don't know, he goes, I really like your music, but I don't know if it's cool, you know? <laughs> like, you know, and I didn't know if, like, Again, it was that sort of Karen Carpenter thing, right? Like he thought, is this really square? Like what kind of, because <laughs> I, had, I had these songs like
0: wasting, like wasting Time that were like these love balance and stuff. And um, how, how different were songs like that from, from the demo process to the completion?
1: Um, well, like, not, not that different in terms of structure, you know? Uh-huh. Um, I spent a week at Mitchell's house in California, um, just me and him doing pre-production. Yeah and and, you know, also I had like about thirty-five songs. So we're going through all these songs and figure and the sort of funny thing is my publisher at the time who signed me, his name is Ronnie Vance, was extremely hands-on, you Uh know, with to uh, you know, to kind of a ridiculous degree. And and he had selected the songs that he wanted to go on my first album. And and he wouldn't let me play anybody anything else. He was just like kind of... How did he have that power? Well, he thought he knew best. He was like a father figure. He'd sign me. Okay. And I respect him, you know. And yeah. and he, and you know, so, so all the songs that he picked were these like love songs and things that he thought could be hits or something. Uh-huh. But as soon as I got alone with Mitchell... He was like, "What other songs have you got?" <laughs> <laughs> and so I started playing them um, like, like all these <clears throat> other ones, you know, like Lebanon, Tennessee, and Galbraith Street and, right. and most of the, most of the songs that made up my first album actually, and my publisher hit the roof. he was so mad that really, uh, yeah, because I was not supposed to
0: he didn't think these songs did he I, want to hold those back for something else or he just
1: didn't think they were um I don't know if he didn't think they were good songs or he it didn't fit into his vision of what I was supposed to be. Okay. And and he was just livid, you know. And Really? Um I remember him telling me like he liked the song Galbray Street, but he said you should not record that. Uh he says, uh you, you haven't he said, Told me I haven't earned the right to sing a song like Galbray Street. Really? Yeah, at that time. He said, Maybe after your fourth or fifth album or like I don't even know what that meant, right? Yeah. And uh, you know, there's other songs that I like. Uh, like from a few streets over that my publisher hated, you know. So so when he saw the track listing of the songs we were gonna <laughs> do, he was not happy. And I mean we we did like I think we did three or four of the ones that he wanted. Yeah. But but he didn't like the way
0: we did them. You know? So how did how did you get her like how did how was that <clears throat> reconciled?
1: Well, it was a huge fight in uh, at Interscope where they that's why if you notice there's a Daniel Lanois version on there. Yeah I wanted
0: to ask you about that.
1: Yeah because Jimmy Iving hated the record he, his first uh, you know impression was he said it sounded like swordfish trombones you know That's a compliment I that to me but to him it was an it was Really? It, wasn't meant, it wasn't meant as a compliment. Wow! You know?
0: I would say thanks, man. That's awesome. Yeah,
1: well, <laughs> yeah. Because after he he didn't like the record. He thought we went totally the wrong direction. You and
0: Iavine I mean, was the head of Interscope, right? Yeah. And he
1: after that album, yeah, he's he's the guy that ultimately signed me. And after that record, he had nothing to do with me again. Actually, after that,
0: really, that's so crazy because it's such a great record. But... I
1: got passed up. Well, they they didn't know that at first. And what happened was um, we did this record and. You know, I had to go to Quebec and do this because they wanted me to scrap the album and do the, the whole thing over with Lanois, and and I was really stressed out. And I mean, Lanois was great, and I would have loved to have made a record with him, but I didn't want to make that record with him because I'd already made it. You know, yeah, and and you, but you were happy with the record. I was happy, yeah. and also I, I liked Mitchell so much, and Mitchell actually made me promise when we started the record that I would fight for it. You know.
0: Did he foresee these kind of problems coming up after it was done?
1: Oh yeah, he I did. mean okay. Mitchell in the he, you know, he had almost contempt for the record industry. Yeah, I mean, uh, and I didn't know I was I was fighting for it because I mean I didn't know if it was any good, right? You know, I mean it didn't sound like any record that that I, yeah, I, you know what I mean. Like at that time, it didn't that's what
0: that's what I love about that record. I mean, I yeah. I, I remember being on tour with rock bands at the time and putting that record on, and it was like, there was there was nothing else like it. The only thing that it vaguely reminds me of is something like Kiko, of course, because of the sonic sound yeah. that Froom had on it.
1: Well, it was interesting to me recording it, because I don't know what I was expecting, but uh-huh. it didn't sound like a major label debut, you know? Yeah, and So I could understand the label not liking it, and I felt bad, you know, because I wanted them to like it, but... And then I was trying to hold on. I thought, okay, what have I done? Maybe they're going to drop me and it's never going to be released. And it was very stressful. And, um, you know, I remember working with Chad and somebody would slam a door and he would bring that. That would be on the record, you know? Right. Like, and it was this interesting thing, like, oh. And I and I, and I had a reference point because Dylan would have things like that, you yeah, know? Yeah. And, and or the Beatles would do stuff like that. So I, I was trying not to have a knee-jerk reaction. Uh-huh. And but the thing is when we after a lot of fighting the the record finally came out it, it came out in North America first in 95 and it just died right and they didn't promote it and I was out on these tours opening for people nobody nobody knew you know gave a crap about it or anything and in December of that year they were getting ready to drop me really kind of like I told you so kind of thing and that's when, out of the blue, and I didn't see this coming at all, was Elvis Costello held it up on the cover of a magazine in England okay. on the cover, and and it was like you know the shot heard around the world, you know, for whatever reason. Yeah. And all of a sudden, everyone, all the critics all around the world wanted to hear this record, and and also at that time, a woman named Ann Brubaker came on board. Uh, has head of international at Interscope, and yeah. she and she loved the record. Um, and she told Jimmy, she goes, "I think Ron's audience is in Europe and you know Australia and all these places, and we should, you know, you know, don't give up on this record yet." And so it was in '96; it got released all around the world, and that's when I really found my audience. And I was that year; I think I was on every. Oh, not every but a lot of critics year-end lists you know uh-huh, for that uh-huh. album yeah and uh mojo and Q you know i was it was just crazy whirlwind time 96 because i was going around i met mccartney and <laughs> you know i met all my heroes and and i was going to all these places i'd never been before like japan and stuff yeah and um and i and interscope's feelings towards me changed it was kind of like Oh, maybe the, maybe there is something here, you know. Right. And so they passed me on to uh Tom Wally, who was I think the vice president of Interscope, and he kinda liked me. And and so we went from there and we did two more records, but every record I did, you know, they were never happy that I worked with Mitchell Froome again. Really? And they were you know, but I think because the first album did so well critically at least, yeah. um you know, and, and also because it was such a successful label they could afford to have what they would call as a, a cred artist back then. Right. You know? right. And so they just kind of left me alone. To, so I did the other songs. I did Whereabouts with Mitchell. But every album I did, they were hoping I was going to hit one out of the park eventually. You know? Yeah, and, yeah. But I, but I never did. you know. And so by Blue Boy, they actually paid for that album, but then decided they weren't going to put it out. So I, I went somewhere else with it.
0: Really? After they heard it?
1: Yeah, because I worked with Steve Earle, and he had yeah. just... You know, he did Car Wheels on a Gravel Road, yeah. so, so they were hopeful, because Whereabouts did terribly, you know, um, they were hoping that Blue Boy would be my Car Wheels on a Gravel Road. And oh, it,
0: okay, so that was the timing, it was right after Car Wheels, and Ray yeah. Kennedy and, and Steve Earl were hot because of that.
1: That's what I thought I was doing too, but my that that record that sounds nothing like Car Wheels on a Gravel Road. It doesn't, Yeah. You know, and I was a little bit disappointed, actually. Um, really? I think Steve wanted to make revolver, and I, I wanted to make some, <laughs> you know country album and um, to this day, that album sort of bothers me a little bit because I, we did it so fast and I always felt it sounded like a demo for a record that could have been really good, you know
0: what What, what, what about it does not feel um, complete to you? cuz I think it's a cool sounding record. A
1: lot of people like it, you know. Yeah. And actually it did not too badly for me in America. It's probably my best selling album in the states. Oh, but yeah. um I just
0: didn't like the way I sang on it. What, was it done quickly? Like can you tell me a bit I, about those sessions?
1: Yeah, well, we did um 17 songs in 5 days, you know. Holy like shit. The, the, the initial bed tracks. Yeah. And I and then, you know, and Steve also had an album at that he was working on at the time, so we didn't i didn 't feel like I had his full you know uh, attention, so a lot of the time it would be just Ray and us, you know okay um,
0: were you th- in Nashville
1: for that? yeah, okay. and the other thing was I was sort of going through my family was falling apart oh. and um, and the only Steve only had this <clears throat> sorry a small window of opportunity to do this record, yeah, and so right in the midst of all that, I had to go to Nashville for a month to do the record. So they put me up at this. It was like an apartment called the Spence Manor, um, kind of a rock and roll apartment building. Yeah, with this guitar shaped swimming pool and everything.
0: Yeah, I know where that is.
1: <laughs> yeah, so I was there for a whole month, and the studio was like about a ten minute walk from there. It was, I, it was actually kind of fun being there.
0: Which studio was
1: it? Um, room and board. Uh-huh. It was Steve Earle's place. Yeah, and um, so yeah, I mean, it, so it was sort of like um, best of times and the worst of times because. Yeah. You know, I liked working with Steve, and it was great having Don Kerr on my record for, you know, because he.
0: So Don was drumming on that one?
1: He was drumming, uh-huh. and, uh, and Brad Jones, who, who had played on other songs and whereabouts, was on bass, and, you know, he's a phenomenal musician. Yeah, he is. So, you know, um, I, I did feel a bit, you know, not having Mitchell's uh, Mitchell there was hard on me because I was, always valued his opinion, and, yeah. and I always felt that he kind of had my back, at least sonically, about things. Right. And uh, you didn't you didn't feel that way, but not as much. And, and and we had different. Me and Steve and I had a sort of different vision. Uh-huh. But he wanted because he'd heard me singing at the Elma Combo in the eighties, and right. he and he wondered why I hadn't made a record like that. That was sort of rocked or something. Uh huh. So he was determined to try to rock a bit more. And whereas, you know, Mitchell told me I wasn't very good at rocking, so, <laughs> which I hadn't done on any of those albums, you know. Yeah. So, so that's why Steve wanted to start with a big kind of rocking tune.
0: Yeah.
1: And, and it just starts off with this big, you know, drum fill and horns. And, and it made me nervous, you know, because I, I, I never liked to start off a record that way, you know. I was oh. kind of like to ease into it. And, uh, uh, but again, you know, we did that record, and I think it has its own – vibe in in my uh you know my catalog or whatever and did people, you
0: did you realize like before you started that record that there was some maybe some brewing uh conflicts about the direction of the production
1: yeah I knew when I got down there because you know I had my a list and b list of songs and yeah. he too and I noticed that his list almost had no ballads on it right you know? and um you know and and so we would butt heads a few times especially near the end when he when it was like we have to take this one off okay well if you take that one off i'm gonna take this one off you know right There was a bit of that going on i think he was a little bit annoyed at times um but uh you know because it's like 15 songs on the record you know and uh i don't know it's just uh you know people you know always come up to me this and they they talk about that album and, and so I don't know it's maybe I'm too close to it. And the other thing about the record is like it's all over the place. You know, there's a ska song on there and there's right. um <clears throat> this sort of jazz ballad and and I asked Steve one day, I said, I don't know what kind of record we're making here, you know. It's like and he goes, Well, have you ever heard the white album, you know? <laughs> you know? and I so yeah, right. So I always kinda of looked at it almost as my white album. You know? Right.
0: Okay. Um and so in in the first stages of making that record, when you were like ready to go and you had a record, was he was the Twang Trust sort of assigned to you as the production team, or was that your choice ultimately?
1: Well, I had a whole list of people I wanted to work with, and the Interscope uh, said no to everyone that
0: was on my list. Who was that? Who would have been on your list? Like who were the, some of the top? I had
1: people like Gus Dudgeon, you know, did yeah. the Sound records, and Nick Lowe. Um uh, okay. you know, I had all these people. Uh, even Lanois, actually, the first guy I was going to do the album with was Daniel Lanois, uh-huh. and it would have been a very different album. Yeah, and, uh, no kidding. But but this was the second time where I was going to work with him, and he had to bail on me because of another bigger project that came along. Right, you know? right. So I actually, I did all the demos for this record were done at Daniel Lanois' studio, and that's what Steve Earle was listening to when, when okay. he decided to do it. okay they it was their idea to go with twang trust and when they first said it it appealed to me right away, you know. Because I knew Steve, I've known him since the eighties and he's and he was always good to me. And I like wheels on a gravel road. So I thought, oh yeah, you know. And yeah. also I thought that might be kind of uh it had a sort of cool factor to it, you know? Yeah, with-
0: totally. And they they had they had a sonic stamp too, not maybe not as uh as obvious as Mitchell Froom but you know they were they were known for or still are known for using like heavy compression and like really aggressive but acousticky kind of sounds so i i can see how, i can see the thought process of using them for sure
1: yeah and um so we, so we did it and like i say at the end they decided to pass on it and thankfully they let us take the record elsewhere
0: uh-huh
1: and we found a found a label called Spin Art that released it Actually, uh, I'm on Cooking Vinyl now, and that was the first time I'd worked with Cooking Vinyl was on Blue Boy in, like, 2001. And they released it, like, around the world, like, min- minus North America. Okay. And, you know, then I had no idea I'd be going back to Cooking Vinyl, you know, years later. You right. Know? But, um, but, yeah, but that album actually, uh, you know, for, it, did, it did pretty well. Uh, so that was, it was nice after being sort of dropped by Interscope to have a record that did yeah, kind of yeah. pretty well.
0: So. Yeah, screw you guys.
1: Yeah, it's almost like that.
0: <laughs> what was the general um, tracking um, process for, say, for that record? Um, uh, you know, where it's kind of raw and organic sounding. Um, was it done like bass, drums, guitars, and then your vocals were done after, or how, how did you do it? Everything you
1: hear was live, singing.
0: Everything. Everything.
1: And, I mean, obviously, we did some overdub, like instrumental overdubs and things. Yeah. In harmonies. But every song was me in a booth singing and playing guitar, looking at Don and Brad. Okay. And um, and because we had such a limited time, you know, that first week we were just just barreling through songs one right. after the other. And, um, you know, and Steve Earl would be like, okay, next. You know, you got it or something. <laughs> like, uh, <clears throat> you know, we were like the Ramones or something. We were just like bashing through these songs. And... Uh, you know, and I, I like that aspect of it because I actually, uh-huh. you know, most of my albums were done kind of that way where I'm singing and playing. Yeah. You know, but um, that was still analog, you know. Right. Um, the one the cool thing about the digital world is you could do a song live with your band, maybe four takes, and you can mix and match, you know. Yeah, of course, yeah. Like the bass player says, oh, am I take three was great. Whereas my vocal might've been take two all the way, you know, and you can just slide it all over and you have, everybody's happy, you know? So, yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, it was done very quickly and very, yeah, it's very raw sounding record. And, um, there's a few things I like on it though.
0: Tell me a bit about your relationship with some of the people in Toronto that have come in and out of your career a lot. Like we've mentioned Don Kerr, um, Kurt Swinghammer, um, I know there's a couple other people too, but, um, how big of an influence have those people had that you've played a lot with over the years and recorded with on various projects?
1: Well, Don, um, we met, actually Kurt introduced Don and I. So one of the best things Kurt ever did for me, um, you know, because, uh, we were, Don and I were both working at Sunwheel Courier Company when I moved there. Yeah. And I saw him, but I didn't know who he was. Uh Uh-huh. And, um, and he came up to me one day and said, um, you know, he was a friend of Kurt's, and Kurt had mentioned that I was a good songwriter. And and, and at that time, Don and this guy Steve were this, were a rhythm section looking for a songwriter, you know? <laughs> and, you know, it was like the whole, you know, Reese's Peanut Butter Cup thing, you know? Right,
0: right. Who is Steve?
1: His name was Steve uh, Rappus, but uh-huh. I think he went, he went by the name of Steve Charles. Okay. And, um... And they were in a band called the Rhythm Twins at the time, and are they just been kicked out of it or something? Yeah. And so we, uh, <clears throat> and this was only a month after I'd been in Toronto. So in December we started rehearsing at Dawn's, and I had a few songs that I'd written, but mostly we did covers. Oh yeah. And, and
0: what what kind of stuff?
1: Oh, you know, we used to do "I Was Made to Love Her" by Stevie Wonder. Yeah. You know. Um, I think some Motown stuff. I can't even remember, but uh, but our first, our very first gig was playing at the Sunrio Courier Christmas party <laughs> that, in that December, and Rockin'. I think, yeah, and we'd worked up maybe we had about twenty songs by then because you know most again mostly covers, and I had a few a few originals that I think ended up on Grand Opera Lane, which, which was my first, you know. Yeah. And actually, I'd started Grand Opera Lane. In November, after I'd met Bob Wiseman, before I even met Don, you know. Uh So, but anyway, so Don uh, has been my wingman kind of uh, rock in a way for all this time on so many tours. And, and we, uh, you know, he's got this really nice high voice and always had a good sort of vocal blend. And, uh, you know, and he was involved in those early Mitchell albums as well. Like we flew him down and, you know, he sang on um other songs and did some percussion and and sang on whereabouts as well. Uh-huh. You know, but Blue Boy was the first album that he like cause Steve Earl remembered him from the Alma Combo and he said, Where's that drummer? He was great. You know, so we brought him down and uh and now this new album I've done is the first album that Don has played on since Blue Boy. And he's just wow. he's an incredible drummer. And the only he reason is, I, yeah. you know, the only reason I haven't used him or my band is that you know, I'm mean, I'm working often, you know, in LA or England, where I can not afford to have my band over there for a month while I'm recording. You know, so yeah, um, and most producers tend to have a they have a guy, yeah, or, or they ha- they'll have a whole posse of musicians that they like to use. And uh, but uh, no, so Don's been there, and you know, I, there's been some years where he wasn't available to tour because he has, you know, kids and stuff. And it was never the same, you know. I right. had a lot of drummers who were good, but it just wasn 't either were too loud or what you know Don is like i don 't even guy like guy for you yeah i don't even like the tour if he's if he's
0: not available you yeah. know I'm sure he'd like to hear that yeah
1: <laughs> and, and, and Kurt has been my uh, one of my best friends since the eighties, and he produced my first cassette called there 's away uh-huh. in eighty uh, six uh-huh. and uh he's he 's the guy that I see most. Uh, when I'm in Toronto. I'm over at his house quite a bit. bit. And and okay. actually, we just made a record for his partner, Laurie Cullen.
0: Oh, yeah. I heard a bit about that.
1: Yeah, that I wrote the lyrics and he wrote all the music.
0: This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which slash weightloss Is Tell me a, a little bit about the scene in Toronto. Um, first of all, where you came, where you came from before that, and uh, when you were there, like I guess late eighties, early nineties, what was going on, and where you were playing, and what the scene was like. Well, I moved up in eighty seven from from where Saint Catharines. Oh, okay. And um, and I'd planned to
1: move. A few years earlier I just didn't have the money and I was living in Quebec after my son was born and that was when I became a songwriter and I all of a sudden I was writing songs like There's No Tomorrow because before then I didn't know what I was going to do with my life and
0: um you hadn't really played much music or
1: No I'd played music but I hadn't written anything uh-huh. and I was in I was playing in bars doing cover songs and but living in Quebec sort of brought out the songwriter in me Uh-huh and having a kid, I wrote Speaking with the Angel and I thought, oh, it's not such a bad song. And I wrote all these other ones. And that's when I did the album with, with Kurt because I had just had, you know, it was so new. I was just writing like, you know, the way I'd always heard songwriters wrote, sort of in a frenzy, you know. I, I had this batch of songs <laughs> and that had never happened to me before. <clears throat> and, and that was around the time Kurt Kurt was... Saying, Oh man, you gotta move to Toronto, you know, Toronto's the big city, you gotta uh-huh. and and so but it took me a while, so I had to move back to St Catharines first to get a job and save some money in order to move to Toronto. Yeah. So finally in November of eighty seven, I get I get there with my little family and it was a real struggle, you know, cuz we were broke all the time. Were you yeah. trying to make a living as
0: a as a musician at that point?
1: Well, I was, you know, I got a job as a courier almost like the first week I was there. Okay. But then every night I would be going out to all the open stages, you know. Yeah. And that, that's where I met Bobby Wiseman who you know, it was sort of the most important person I met, actually, because he really, I don't think I'd have a career if it wasn't for Bobby, you know? Uh,
0: he was just really encouraging? And
1: Well, he, he uh, at the time, was in Blue Rodeo. Yeah. And they were doing very well, and he had, uh, so he had a good paycheck from that. And he also had access to this recording studio in the basement of the music gallery. Perfect. And sure. and he was producing these local songwriters, like Kip Harness and Bob Snyder. yeah. So he heard me on an open stage, and he said, "Hey, you're just like Elvis Presley," and I said, "Well, actually, I'm born on the same day as Elvis Presley," <laughs> and um, and and he'd heard speak with the angel, and I don't know this song called Trains, and he wanted, and he said, "Well, I have the studio; it costs five dollars an hour, and, <laughs> uh, and you have to, but you have to pay for the tape." So I had to come up with like about a hundred and. 20 bucks or something to buy the master tapes, right? which was really hard at the time. But sure. I I think he might have even loan, loaned me the money or something. <laughs> and um, so I would go there whenever he was in town, because he was very busy.
0: He was out with Blue Rodeo a lot. Yeah,
1: yeah. so whenever he had it, he would call me out of the blue. It says, hey, do you want to come by? And so I went down, and, and whenever I'd be in the studio, I would try to get as much done as I could, because you never knew when you were going to see him again. Right. So we started recording Grand Opera Lane in 87, And then, but then it didn't come out till 91. So it was this long ordeal, this drawn out
0: thing. Were were you doing gigs at this point as a solo artist?
1: Yeah, we were, were, well, with my band, it was me, Don and Steve. We were called Ron Sexmith and the Uncool. And we were playing, uh, uh, you know, the Cameron used to give us gigs and Say What. And we were also opening a lot for the Leslie Spit Trio who were, becoming who were getting a huge buzz in Toronto at the time. And they uh-huh. got signed, they got signed to Capitol actually. And that was encouraging for me because I thought, wow, you know, it's happening. Like there's a scene here and, and there was this open stage called fat Alberts that was very important to my, uh, development as a songwriter because it was every Wednesday in the basement of the church. And I got to hear all these great writers like Sam Larkin and Bob Snyder. And yeah, and, uh, and it, you know, it was just a really cool scene. There'd be poets, comedians, and I'd go to other open stages, but after a while, I just stopped going to, to them except for Fat Hubbers because it was really the only one worth going to. And, uh, you know, Bobby Wise would be there. And so that, that was a really... For me, like when I hear Dylan talk about Greenwich Village in the '60s, and that was sort of my Greenwich Village. You know, that was
0: it for you, yeah. That was it for me. Was Fat Albert's the venue for that? It or? was
1: called. It was. It was in the basement of a church. Okay. And it was. I don't know why it was called Fat Albert's, but <laughs> uh, but you know, back then, and the church never liked us being there. You know, there, so there was always really? this yeah fight between the organization and. But it, it was dark, and the people would be smoking, and they always had coffee and donuts and stuff. And, <laughs> and um, you'd go out in the halls, would be all these songwriters and people preparing their song, because you only got to do two songs, you know? Okay, yeah. And then you had to sign up on a list, and you could be the first one there, but then you would draw a number, and all of a sudden, you were the first one in line, but you got number 32 or something. Right. So you're waiting all night to pl- uh, to perform,
0: Yeah.
1: <clears throat> which actually wasn't too bad, because... I saw some incredible performances there, and, um, uh-huh. but it was just really good for me because it was competitive as well, or right. at least it was for me. Right. I'd hear somebody sing a great song, and I'd be like, oh, well, I'm going to show you, you know, I'm going to go back home and write the really good song and come back next week with it yeah. or So it was just really good, and my, one of my best friends at the time was Kip Harness, and I was so inspired by hearing his songs, and, uh, and we hung out a lot, and I think I became a better songwriter just from hanging out with them, you know. Yeah. And no one was coming to see me, you know. I think there was moments where maybe there was a little bit of a buzz, you know. Uh huh. But um, so yeah. So I got just I was going nowhere until s- some people in Los Angeles, um, mm-hmm. namely Ronnie Vance, who I told you about earlier, who signed me to a publishing deal with Interscope. He heard speak with the angel and sort of signed me based on that song.
0: You know? Oh wow! Okay. Um, And that was, was that signing to the publishing deal and him pushing you as a songwriter and artist? Was that what sort of brought on the feeding frenzy of label interest at that point? Yeah.
1: Well, there was only a, there was a small bidding war between Interscope and Polydor. Uh But yeah, that's where it began is because he uh, signed me. And I started right away uh, demoing. I'd never been on an airplane before, and I flew down to L.A. <laughs> you know, I was like 28 or something. He had me working with this guy, Peter Himmelman, doing demos. And um, and originally, I just figured, well, this is... I didn't even see it as a record contract. I thought, well, maybe if I'm lucky, someone will do my songs,
0: and I'll make some money, you know. Right, you just thought it was a publishing deal.
1: Yeah, cause, yeah. well, it was just a publishing deal, but he, he didn't give me any encouragement that it would lead to a record deal. He said, you know, this is probably all it's going to be, so... You know, write some, try to write some hits or something. And um, but the interesting thing was, he started sending these demos out to producers uh-huh. like Mitch Froom and different people. And uh, and one of the people uh, he sent my demos to was this guy named David Seegerson at Polydor Records, and he was a songwriter himself actually. Uh-huh. He loved the songs, and um, you know, uh, at one point he wanted wanted to meet me, and so. They flew me to New York City and I'd never been to New York City in my entire life. Uh-huh. And the night before, I'm playing for two people in Toronto at some horrible gig, you know? <laughs> and so the next morning, bright and early, I'm flying to New York City and. Exciting. I, very exciting. I go to his office. It's like 11 in the morning. And I play David Sigerson a couple songs live. And he goes, So would you like to sign a deal with Polydor Records? <laughs> you know? Whoa. And, I don't think anyone's ever gone to New York and had a record deal offer on the first day, you know? <laughs> Maybe it's happened, I don't know. <clears throat> but but and I really liked to have it because I felt he got he got me or whatever. Yeah. But but because my publisher worked for Interscope, he felt uh, you know, out of loyalty or something to let Jimmy Ivey know. Uh-huh. So so he called Jimmy that night and said, just letting you know one of my writers has just been offered a deal at Polydor. Would you like to hear this guy, or are you interested at all? So two days later, Jimmy Iovine flew me to Los Angeles. Oh my god! And I played for him in his office. You know. Wow. And uh, and he was like, he's very like a Joe Pesci type of figure. You know, totally. kind of very gangster type guy. <laughs> yeah. You know, and he saw me. He thought he goes, "Well, you're, he goes, you're like Roy Orbison or whatever he said." You know, and uh, which I like Roy Orbison. Sure. And so anyway, I found myself in this little bidding war where ultimately I went with Interscope because, well, I, you know, there was all this pressure for me to go there. And they seemed like they were the new big label. They were, uh... Yeah, I at the
0: time, there was a lot of talk about that label, I remember.
1: Well, they had everything on their label was doing well. Like, uh-huh. you know, Snoop and Marilyn Manson and Nine Inch Nails and, every, you know, they had the four non-blondes or whatever. And I, to this day, I I... I don't really understand why they w- even wanted me, except for the fact that another label did. You know, because yep. they, n- they never knew what to do with me,
0: right? And um, so maybe it was just because they didn't want to—they didn't want you to go to the other label.
1: Well, it was at that time, yeah. when labels were throwing so much money around.
0: Yeah, you cut you caught right the tail end of that whole world. Yeah. Right? I mean
1: I didn't get any of that money that people were throwing around. I got <laughs> some but but I would hear about deals where some guy would get a million dollars and then they wouldn't even release their album or something, you know. Crazy. But that was at that time where they, they would just throw sign you just to have you so nobody else could in a way, you know. Right, right. Um, and uh <clears throat> so that was very exciting and very scary and uh uh, but a lot of that was all because of Bob Wiseman knew someone at Geffen, and he sent my cassette down. And yeah. Ronnie, Ronnie Vance, who would you know, who worked at Geffen at the time, heard Speak with angel, and you know, even when he he came up to Toronto to see me play once, and and his feeling was, well, you know, you don't sing very well, you don't look very good, but you're a good songwriter. So <laughs> so,
0: so that song had a lot of impact. You keep bringing that one up yeah, as, as that, the one that, that people... was the
1: one most responsible for me getting uh, in the door.
0: Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about your songwriting process? I'm sure it's not always the same, but I'm wondering if you're like a generally like a lyrics first kind of guy, and how you approach melodies because your melodies are so strong and unusual. But you know, they they're pop melodies, but they're also like I hear like Tin Pan Alley and even like Fats Waller kind of jazz. And I don't know if you've studied that kind of stuff ever.
1: Yeah, I love all that stuff. I love uh, you know I, I I've always been very curious. You know, I mean, obviously. Growing up on the radio, uh, I would hear so many different kinds of music. Like, you know, ra- radio seemed to be a lot healthier that way. You yeah, know, and it's very, you know, regimented. But, you know, um, and I always, I've always been drawn to melody, and not only melody, but voices. I love singers uh-huh. with yeah. natural voices, and, and I would listen to their phrasing. And uh, I loved, uh, even as a kid, you know, my grandmother loved Bing Crosby, so I loved Bing Crosby, you know.
0: Who else were the big ones for you when you were... A kid. Well,
1: I loved Charlie Rich, uh-huh. you know, as a kid. I loved, you know, my mom uh, was really into country music, so I loved Tammy Wynette and all that stuff. Yeah, cool. And, and then she also had this, I guess my dad left when I was two, but he had this, they might have been his records, I don't know, but there was a box of 45s that was very instrumental in um, in turning me on to music. And it was a lot of 50s doo-wop and uh, stuff like that. And uh-huh. and Buddy Holly was probably the, the the trigger for me because uh oh, yeah. I listened he had they had a forty five of it doesn 't matter anymore that i it was my favorite song as a kid, and I played it over and over and over, and I was also um aware that he was dead and how he died, which was kind of, gave it another element, a sort of eerie thing you know yeah, right of course and that he was just uh, you know what is he twenty two or something you know, and I liked Elvis and, and that too. But basically, every song I heard on the radio—you know—you'd turn on the radio and you'd hear Bill Withers, and then you'd hear, uh, you know, maybe Badfinger or something. Uh It was a really melodic period of of time. Yeah, it really was. Yeah. But I was always interested, and you know, as I got a bit older, I mean, did you did you
0: write at all as a kid? Well, sort of, not
1: not really. I would. Um, I, it was kind of like Linus from Peanuts, you know. I had <laughs> I had this I had a sock that I would carry around with me. <clears throat> and I would sit in my room and I would sing and I would spin the sock around. And, um, you know, my mom was a bit worried that I was talking to a sock or something. But I think <laughs> what I was doing was writing. Because uh-huh. even to this day when I write, I, I write a lot when I'm walking around. And I usually need something in my hand to twirl like really? a pen a pen or something yeah
0: not a sock anymore
1: no my mom threw it away when i was 16 she was actually <laughs> worried about it because i was i would go everywhere with it really yeah. yeah so yeah i mean i was i think i was writing i didn't know it um yeah. and you know and i had uh bands when i was 14 that where we didn't know how to play anything but we would make up these songs that were really bad and sure. um but, you know, the writing process still is pretty much the same, though. I, I generally, it's not a lyric first or music first. It's sort of a bit of both where I get um, sometimes, you know, I have this thing that I want to say and I try to figure out how to say it. Other times I'm sort of following following it. I'll get a phrase that, that's interesting to me or intriguing mm-hmm. and I don't exactly know why I'm saying it, you know. And, I'll, and you know, music, the melody... It's always been the easy, easy part for me.
0: Uh huh.
1: You know, so sometimes I'll have a tune in my head with no words, and uh, I'll just hum it to myself over and over until
0: words uh, present themselves. Present themselves. Uh-huh. Yeah. Do you struggle? Do you struggle with the lyrics at all, or do they end up coming?
1: I always struggle with the lyrics. You yeah, you? it's the hardest part. There, I mean, with a few exceptions, there uh-huh. have been songs uh, where the lyrics came super fast. Like uh, "Secret Heart" was one of them. God Everyone, I pretty much scribbled the whole thing down in one take, unedited, you know, really? and, and had no music for it. Um, a song like Get In Line from the Bob Rock album was written in about 20 minutes, music and lyrics, you know? Wow. So, um, but then there's other songs, Strawberry Bond took me t- almost two years to write.
0: Just tweaking it and tweaking it and going back and...
1: Going back and how know. do
0: you how do you know when a song like that is finished? If you spend so, you've probably rewritten it twenty or thirty well, times at that point. And
1: well, with Strawberry Blonde, it was hard uh, because my when I started writing it, I initially set out to, to write it in two verses. And it was supposed to be more impressionistic, uh-huh. kind of like uh, you know Tim Harden and Black Sheep Boy or something, you uh-huh. know. And I couldn't do it, and I felt like such a failure. And then it ended up having to be more of this linear story song, like a Charles Dickens miniature kind of song, you know. Uh-huh. And and then I was writing, it was too sad, and I didn't want it to end sad or anything. And so it wasn't until I came up with the ending when, you know, I didn't know how to end it, and I thought, oh, I know, he sees, sees them years later and realizes that they're okay, you know, and right, that's what's right. all worked out. And, so th- and then I was like, you know, hallelujah. <laughs> you know, like I, I had to finish song. It's totally different from the song that I set out to write. But, but obviously, people really like that one. And it, it's one of my most
0: requested songs. Yeah, right. That really sticks out in the canon, I would say. It's mm-hmm. an exceptional song. What about, as far as the, the writing goes, what about on the guitar? Um, mm. I don't know how into guitar you ever got. But you got a very cool style. Like, your fingerpicking is unique. And you've obviously yeah. studied various things. But were there were there people that really stuck out to you as, like, influences on guitar or piano as songwriters?
1: Well, piano was always my first love. Was it? Yeah, but I never had a piano until I was 40. And then I i mean, my only exposure to pianos was when I started making records. I'm sorry, I was getting over cold. Yeah, me too. You know, so there would always be a piano in the recording studio. So whenever there was downtime, I would go right to the piano.
0: Uh-huh. Because
1: I, I love Charlie Rich and Elton John. I was a member of the Elton John fan club as a kid. Okay. But there was never a piano around. And so when I started my first band, I, I sort of got forced to into playing guitar because nobody else wanted to. Um, but I got into it. And, and I guess the first guitar player that I was aware of was... Um, Probably Davy Johnston from Elton John's band. You know,
0: uh-huh.
1: I just found it interesting. I would read the credits, and I still do. I love looking at liner notes me and too, stuff, man.
0: Yeah, you know.
1: And I would say, wow, look, Davy's played mandolin, guitar, and you know, pedal steel on the songers. It was, it was always interesting to me, uh-huh. you know, that he could play so many. Um, and through Elton John, I got into the Who because I went to see Tommy,
0: uh-huh.
1: and and Townsend became probably my biggest influence on the gu- on the guitar. Really. Not even not even so much as a songwriter, but as a guitar player. Really? Like, especially the way he played acoustic, you know? Because
0: he just sort of... Like the super rhythmic strumming part of it?
1: Yeah, and just, it was exciting, you yeah, know? Like, There's never a moment when he's playing guitar that it's not exciting. Yeah. He's not technically as good as Jimmy Page and those people, but and I love Jimmy Page too, but Townsend was... I just, I just loved the way he played guitar. I wasn't very good at writing rock songs, but I can, you know, I mean, I think I've gotten a little better at it, but, um, so, so I really got into the guitar and, and the other thing was from playing the bars, um, I, I used to play with a pick and it kept falling into the hole, you know, (laughs) and, uh, and I hated that. So, so after a while I just stopped using a pick and that's where my style was born. Okay. uh, Using my thumb and my first finger. Yeah. So I didn't want to deal with picks anymore. Ah, and, um, interesting. And I got, you know, got it to a point where I, I could strum and do everything I I could do. Yeah. And and
0: so yeah. So that's that's really what, where about, what about finger pickers? Like, were there people in the in the folk world, like Doc Watson, or anything that were like influential? I was
1: never, I was never like I, I I'm not a guitar nerd, you know. Yeah. Like, I, I've lo- I love the piano much more. And I have a few guitars, but I've never got into anyone because they were great guitarists. For right. me, it was always about the songs. Uh-huh. You know, I love their songs. And um, and then uh, afterwards, I would notice, oh, I like the way they play guitar, you know. Like, I love the way Richard Thompson plays guitar. Yeah. But I, I wouldn't listen to him if his songs weren't good, you know. Right, it's, right. It's great. <clears throat> and, um, yeah, you know, I, I like the way Leonard Cohen played guitar, you yeah, know. me too. He played in... Uh, I liked how he'd have these little melodies, yeah, guitar that would go through the verses, and, and that influenced me. And um, he has
0: he has seemingly almost random right hand picking patterns, and I kind of noticed a similar thing with you, where it's you know it's not like a simple alternating bass kind of thing on the guitar; it's kind of like a linear right hand thing almost.
1: Yeah. Well, I like to play the guitar. It's almost as if I was playing it as if it, it was a piano. You uh-huh. know.
0: Where I like to
1: pick the melodies out underneath the, you know, when I'm singing, and also yep. like to alternate the bass notes and and be rhythmic and all that. Um, so, but I got a lot, a great deal from listening to Leonard, even though I don't know how to do that fancy whatever it's flamenco kind of thing that he does. You know,
0: uh-huh. was he a big influence on you, like writing wise? Probably. Yeah.
1: Well, yeah. he especially. When my son was born, because I was living in Quebec and obsessively listening to Leonard Cohen's "The Best of Leonard Cohen" at the time, because I found it in a bargain bin at, at the mall, <laughs> and and it, it, his influence was so big that at the time, that it made me question whether it was okay to still like the Kinks and Harry Nilsson, you know. Really? <clears throat> because you know, it was that I was young and it was that impressionable, you know, and I thought, well, everything Leonard does it just feels so lofty, you know, it feels so important to me. Uh-huh. What he's saying and the weight of it that it took me a while to realize, well, I'm a product of all my influences, you know, right? So I may, um, but my the first song I ever wrote, Speak with the Angel, <clears throat> you can hear the Leonard influence in it, you know, sure, yeah. I had other songs that ended up on the Kurt Swinghammer album, the first one I did in 86 that are very Leonard influenced.
0: Um, did you ever get to meet him or play with him? Yeah,
1: actually if you go on YouTube, there's a clip of me and Leonard singing So Long Marianne from Oh cool. You know, 2000 and something.
0: Uh-huh. Or um, was he song, uh, was it was he one of those heroes that you meet that was a uh, good experience?
1: I've never had a bad experience. Okay, you know, good. I've met all my heroes except for Dylan, and they've all been amazing. Uh-huh. Like Ray Davies, you know, I got to sing with him at his studio and met McCartney and all that. But Leonard Cohen was obviously, well, the thing was he was having a book launch, and I was asked to come and sing "Heart with No Companion" because I okay. recorded it on my my first album. Yeah, yeah. And uh, you know, the Bare naked ladies were there, and they were going to do something, and Leonard was just going to be there. We were just supposed to perform for him. So, you know, when I got there in the basement of the bookstore, everyone was, was singing with Leonard, singing his songs. And I was sort of off to the side because I was feeling a bit uh, shy or something. Uh-huh. And Leonard saw me and came over and put his arm in mine and brought me over to the circle. And, we, and they, nice. passed, you know, they passed me guitar, and I, and I knew so many Leonard songs. So I was singing, and Leonard was singing. So by the time we got up on stage, I could tell Leonard – wanted to sing you know and did, did he know who you were
0: like your record was oh, out yeah. at this point okay
1: yeah, he 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 and also he knew of my version of heart with no companion okay because when when i recorded it we got a nice letter from leonard cohen's office saying you know hey leonard really love or whatever so he knew me um okay. knew of me anyway yeah so if you look on the video you'll see it because he, he said i just want to sing on the choruses, you know you take the verses so i sing the first verse but I could see out of the corner of my eye, he's standing there, that like he wants to sing. So, the rest of the rest of the song, he sings the verses, and and I had to feed him all the the first lines. Of really? The yeah, because he it had been that long since he performed. Yeah, sure. So this was that period where he hadn't played <laughs> he in about play 10, 10 years or something, right? Okay. So, um, but it's a, so it was really great, and I met him a, a, a couple other occasions as well, and. Um, so yeah, so he was a very big influence, and so was Lightfoot. Lightfoot almost as big as Leonard for I me. Bet.
0: I wanted to ask you about one other. Um, I don't even know how to pronounce his name properly. Martin T- Tereff or Tariff? Oh yeah, Martin Taraffi. Yeah, Taraffi. Right,
1: it's sort of like Taraff or Taraffi. Yeah, it's hard. Okay.
0: Um, so he's he's British, right?
1: He's actually Swedish. Oh okay. But, but he's been in London for quite some time. So um, you made,
0: I think, Retriever was the first one with I know, him. No,
1: uh, Cobblestone Runway was the first one. Oh okay. Yeah. Then um, we did Retriever, and then we did Exit Strategy.
0: Uh, can you tell me a bit about working with him? I, I've heard some interesting stories about ex- Exit Strategy, how you made that record. and
1: Yeah. You know. you know, Martin and I, we shared a manager, you know? Okay. So I'd, I had met Martin, um, you know, in the early 90s, and I, I met him a few times, but to be honest, I never knew w- what it was that he did, you know? Like, uh-huh. I, you know, I, I originally thought he was a songwriter from Sweden and whatever. And um, so, you know, after I did the, the, the Steve Earle album, around that time, you know, I was in England, and he asked me if I would come in and sing on a record he was producing for this girl named Shay Seeger. Uh-huh. And so I went by the studio, and I sang song, I think it was called Always, that Martin had written for her.
0: Yeah.
1: And I just remember um, listening to the production and really being kind of blown away by it. Uh-huh. Because up to that point, I hadn't done anything in the studio that sounded, you know, modern. Right. You know, sort of, uh, you know, around that time, David Gray had that record that did very well with all these sort of electronic noises and stuff, you know. Yeah. And I, and I didn't like that album, but I... I was it did very well, you know, and I thought, well, I, I should probably try to find someone who could help me update what I'm trying to do, you know, and
0: uh-huh.
1: and make um, because you know, again, I was, I, I'm always trying to, I'm always sort of feeling that my career's in a one step away from the dumpster, you know, you <laughs> know, and and so when I heard Martin doing this record, I thought, wow, you know, and because I, I hadn't really, I felt bad because I hadn't really. Even though I'd known him since the 90s, I hadn't really uh, paid much attention to him. Uh-huh. And so I was at a loss, uh, you know, in terms of who, who to make my next record with. And so I, th- I, I, uh, I, and I got on with him very well. And so I think it was a, right around that time, I had all these songs like Former Glory and, uh, you know, uh, whatever the songs that are on Cobblestone Runway.
0: Golden Them Hills is on that too. Golden right?
1: M Hills. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah. So I had all these songs. And I was touring Blue Boy at the time. Uh-huh. And so I didn't, have, I didn't have a lot of time. So Martin said, well, why don't you come down to the studio and we'll record you to a click track, just guitar and voice. Uh-huh. Which, so I spent like two days doing that, recording really? all, all the songs you hear. And then I, I went back out on the road. And I, that was the only record I've ever made where I wasn't there for
0: any of it. Seriously? That's what happened? Yeah. You did your tracks and then split? Yeah. And they added
1: all this stuff. I never met any of the musicians.
0: No way. I didn't meet the string guy, or the
1: choir, or nothing. And then I think you know, I came back in at different points to sing harmonies or this whatever. Is
0: in, in London is where he was in doing. This. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh huh.
1: Yeah. Well, he traveled. I think he went to Nashville and recorded some stuff on it or whatever. <clears throat> but I was um, so I would get these demos in the mail, like on a CD or something. Yeah. Of of uh, and it was really fun to hear because you know. All of a sudden, there's all these instruments on it, and it was like I was listening to somebody else's record because I didn't know what was coming. And yeah.
0: how did how did you like it?
1: Oh, I loved it because um, I think that was one of the first albums where I felt I was starting to sing better. Uh-huh. Like, uh huh. There's a song in there called "The Less I Know," which is I think one of my best vocals ever. Uh huh. And I was hearing these amazing strings, and uh, and and again, all the sort of modern things that I was hoping Martin would bring to it were there. Even Mitchell Froom told me when he heard it, he didn't like he didn't like Blue Boy at all, but he liked Cobblestone Runway. He thought interesting. That's, that's proper. That's a you know producer right there. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that and and that album actually did not too badly for me. Cobblestone Runway, and so you know i felt like i maybe i found my guy you know and so was, we was went,
0: there was there anything in that process where you heard it and you were just like that's not working for me or anything or did it all came back and you dug it
1: the only thing i worried about initially that i don't worry about anymore was dragonfly Bay street <clears throat> because um i'd written it almost like a clash song you know uh-huh and um and obviously the way it turned out was like a a disco song you know right um you know, that didn't last very long, I, but I worried about it initially that, you know, what, what am I, you know, I don't dance, like, what am I supposed to do, you know? And <laughs> um, and also, uh, around that time, I was getting friendly with Chris Martin from Coldplay,
0: uh-huh.
1: who ended up, you know, he really liked Blue Boy, actually, and that's what sort of turned him on to me. And so he, he ended up singing uh, on a version of Goldenham Hills on that record, and, and we ended up, when, they, when the album came out, they took us on the road with them, you know. Opening and, for Coldplay. Uh, With opening for Coldplay, which was Uh, good and bad actually, because I I really don't like opening for people. But um, so, anyway, that was the the start of this kind of nice relationship I had with Martin, and and we did Retriever. And to to this day, Retriever is probably one of my favorite albums that I've. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. And that was an album that wasn't even supposed to happen because I was on this crazy tour, never ending tour. And all I wanted to do was go home. Uh-huh. I was in like New Zealand or something. And my manager said, "Well, Martin is free. <laughs> you know, if you can go, just go to London for a week, you know he's free. He's got musicians. You can, you know, because I guess they knew I had some songs, right? Uh-huh. And I didn't want to. I just wanted to see my house. But right. I, I flew to London, and it was during the worst heat wave of ever in England or something. Riddle. And and so he had all these musicians in the studio." like people like Ed Harcourt and all that. Everyone stripped down to their underwear. You know, it was so hot. There was no, you know. And we did Retriever almost practically in the nude, you know. I hope there's some footage of that. Yeah, I wish there. Well, I'm glad there isn't. But um, <laughs> but, but that but that album is very different from Cobblestone because we were all in the studio looking at each other and playing it.
0: So you're you're playing as a band in on yeah, that record. At, yeah,
1: yeah. He had like some Swedish people, some English people.
0: Oh, interesting. And
1: and that album went so well. It was like an album I didn't even want to make. And everything that I heard coming through the speakers was like, "Wow, yeah. that, that sounds that sounds really good." You know, and
0: and was, uh, was there a lot of input from him into the direction of the yeah, musicians yeah, and
1: stuff? Because I guess I had demoed songs earlier in the year, and he had been listening to them and coming up with ideas and grooves for them. Uh-huh. So he had already had these arrangement ideas, and I said, "Fine, just." It was almost like you tell me what songs you want to do and onto them, and right. I was just so get me like, home. I was just exhausted mentally, uh-huh. you know, and and I mean, the songs that did make it on Retriever ended up being on Destination Unknown, uh-huh. right? Because I had all these songs, and some obviously that's a good match. Know, yeah, and Martin actually picked the songs that I pretty much suspected he was going to pick, you know, uh-huh. with maybe one exception or two, and uh, and so I was very proud of that album. And it came out and it, and it it did well. I mean, I signed to Warner uh, uh-huh. on that record, and we had a couple top twenty songs in Canada,
0: uh-huh.
1: and um, and also that album more than any other record opened things up for me in Spain and Germany. Oh, really? Where I, I used to go to these places before, and nobody would show up, and now all of a sudden I'm, I can go there now and sell out everywhere so- uh, largely because of retriever so
0: wow, just something about those songs connected to that yeah people weird
1: yeah and and uh yeah, and the exit strategy was a very different sort of ordeal because um you know that took a long time to make, and we we're in Cuba and in New York and in london and It was very frustrating, actually, um, making that record, because Martin was working on a bunch of other projects, and I didn't feel like he... I didn't know... Sometimes I'd be in the studio and he wasn't even there, you know? And that was... Really? You know, and and musicians were walking in and out, and depending on who was in the room, all of a sudden, they're playing on the album, you know? And uh, Kevin Hearn came in one day, and he played nicely on a couple songs, and... In
0: in Toronto or...
1: No, in England. He he happened to be in England. And... um, you know, and then going the whole going to Cuba thing, I thought, "Well, how's that going to work?' Because there's nothing Cuban about my music, and I thought it was this weird sort of Frankenstein experiment, that and was
0: martin uh, Martin's idea,
1: yeah,'cause he he'd been there, and he felt that the best horn players in the world were in Cuba,
0: uh-huh.
1: so we went there and and also that was the album I was determined to play as much piano as possible, okay, um so I was tracking on piano, and I'm a terrible piano player, you know, um so you know, it, I, I'm really proud of that record. It, it absolutely uh, did not do well. It, I mean, it, it, it's again, it's one of those albums like Blue Boy where people come up to me and say it's their favorite one. Uh-huh. You know, um, it's a very personal <laughs> album, and I, I think it's some of my best lyrics are on that record. You know, the other thing about it, too, they, when they were mixing it, I, 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 I kept having all this anxiety because they were – there you know the record was recorded very sort of fast and it was almost like a demo you know it was very rough yeah. and the mixes were sounded like they were they were trying to slicken it somehow and then it wasn't working uh-huh. so most most of that album what you hear is the rough mixes because oh really yeah because i sort of be i got sort of demoitis you know where i sure you know, I got so attached to the vibe of the rough mixes and that any time anyone tried to sweeten it or tweak tweak it or something, it just went back to I the original. It. Yeah. So so I just told Martin, you know, just you know, yeah, the rough mixes we can't top them. They just sound really good to me. And um so that's what you're you're hearing. Will you work with him again, do you think, in the future? I don't know, because we were gonna work with him on my latest album. Uh huh. But I couldn't afford him actually. Uh-huh. Already yeah it was the first time in my career uh-huh. and it sort of forced me into this producer role which uh-huh. i i hadn't really didn't want anything to do with um although I'm glad it, it happened that way I'd just become very uh cost prohibitive to make records you know
0: it has yeah
1: uh it's so expensive and nobody wants to buy them so i don't you know i just don't really i don't know how how you know going forward what what the best thing to do is you know um but i'm really glad uh you know i did this record with don and my band because it feels sort of uh appropriate you know
0: yeah sometimes you just need to do it that way yeah and and that that is good that you've that you've done that especially after all i mean you you've had a lot of those guys playing with you for a long time
1: yeah That's and, awesome. that, and we we're all rooting for each other and yeah.
0: you know everyone
1: played so great like my when I hear the demos, I'm just so kind of blown away by my band, you know. And I always knew they were great, but, you know, when you hearing it through the speakers and... Yeah, man. So, I mean, I would love to work with Martin again someday, and he's, you know, I think he's wonderful. And Mitchell, I'd love to work with Mitchell again someday, you know. Even Bob I'd love to work with again. I don't know if he, he feels the same way now, but... Uh-huh. I've made quite a few records. So even if I don't make any more records, I think I've got a pretty good body of work. You
0: know? I sure <laughs> do, man. It's impressive. It's, it's amazing. And it's all over the place. And, and yeah. uh, uh, you know, it's cool to be able to sit down and talk through it with you a little bit. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, so I really appreciate you taking the time, man. It's great to hear all this stuff. And uh, well,
1: Thanks, I'll Steve. OK. Cheers. OK, Have a good take day. care, Ron. Bye.
0: Yeah, bye. All right, that was my conversation with Ron Sexsmith. What a fascinating guy, an amazing career. And uh, I hope you enjoyed hearing some of those stories as much as I did. And we will see you next week for another episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. Music Makers and Soul Shakers is recorded at the Hen House Studio in Nashville, Tennessee. Please visit us online at www.stevedawson.ca. Thanks always to Jeremy Holmes in Vancouver for his help with research and to Michael Glusak for editing, music placement, and mixing.